So we're in a series going through the book of Acts together, and uh, we're in uh, Acts chapter 20. So if you've got your Bible or your version app, whatever you use, turn to Acts 20, and you can, um, uh, we're going to pick up at Pastor Tom preached through like the first few verses of Acts 20 and about Eutychus, the guy that fell out of the, uh, the third story window and then was raised from the dead, which is an awesome, awesome story. Um, but we're going we're gonna to pick up in Acts 20 and like verse 18. And before we even get started, I want to give you like a little bit of background to what, what it is that you're about to, to read. Uh, the Apostle Paul is on his third and final missionary journey. He's done three Three rounds of this. Each one has gotten, you know, hit some of the same places and expanded in different ways. Um, he is compelled at this point, as you're about what we're about to read, to, to go to Jerusalem. And uh, he, he's in a hurry. He wants to make it there by the day of Pentecost. So this is like kind of burning in him. Like he's, he's in a hurry. He wants to go to Jerusalem. He feels compelled by the Holy Spirit to do so. And um, he has this sense that his travels and possibly his life are nearing their end. I don't know if you've ever been there. It's not because he's old. It's because he just has this sense from the Holy Spirit that um, he may not have that much longer to live and, uh, and that there's going to be some hardships that are, that are waiting for him. And so before he leaves, he knows that he may not make another missionary journey back. So he wants to speak to his friends in Ephesus one last time. And so if you don't, if you don't realize this, he, Paul actually spent three years in Ephesus, which is the longest time that he spent in any city in any of his missionary journeys. So these are like his people. These are in, in his missions journeys, the people that he spent the most amount of time with, poured the most amount of, his, um, of just his life into. And so as he's traveling down, he's, he's trying to go back to, to Jerusalem, and he stops off at this place called Miletus, which is about 50 miles south of Ephesus, and he goes ashore and asks and calls for the elders of Ephesus to come down and speak with him. So they have to travel like 50 miles, which is not like in a, in a car, like whether that's on a camel, on a donkey, or just walking. Like 50 miles is a long way back then. So they come all this way to meet with him, and what you're about to read, just to give some weight to this, is the longest speech in the book of Acts given directly to Christians. Now, if you think about this, like we've heard a lot of evangelistic speeches that like Peter, Paul have given to crowds of people to, you know, convert them to Jesus. We've heard um, a lot of just like, uh, I guess you would call them like defense of the faith speeches when, when maybe they're under persecution. But this is the first time that we see a prolonged speech that is aimed directly at believers. And to give even more weight, this is like his farewell address. So think about that. Like, what would be some of the things that you would, if you had like one last moment with people that you loved, what would you leave them with? And this is kind of what he's going to be leaving them with. Um, it's significant. So why don't you stand with me? And uh, we're going to start Acts chapter 20 and pick up in verse 18 says this, when they arrived, they had traveled 50 miles, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. And from the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears in, and in the midst of severe testing 
by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood on any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And now I commit you to God, to the word of his grace, which can build up, build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when Paul had finished speaking, catch this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see him again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Lord Jesus, I, I just thank you for the life of Paul. I thank you for a life well lived. And um, I thank you for not just his testimony. Thank you not just for the letters that we have for posterity and for um, edification through your word. But I thank you that we just see a man that truly loved people and a man who people truly loved. And we just ask that you would just reveal yourself to us in a greater way. Help us to grasp some of the things that maybe he would leave for us as Christians today and what that means for us in the 21st century. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So, um, so you may have like read this kind of like I did. Like I, I literally read through this this past week and I was like, this is kind of all over the place. Like, it's a bit scattered, um, but if you understand that Paul is simply sharing from a very deep place to people that he dearly loved, that he poured his life into for three years, it makes a little more sense. Like, it's kind of like a father, like, you know, raising kids and then sending them off to college, and you're like, hey, um, listen, don't forget to do this, and hey, remember, I've always told you to do this, and, and don't forget this, and you better do that, and don't follow up on this. Like, all of those things, those last-minute details to someone that you truly, truly love. And I want to just, just take a moment to look at what Paul's parting words are to, to these believers that he dearly loves. 
I often ask when I do funerals, I'll talk to the family and I'll ask this specific question. I'll say, is there anything that this person, the person that passed, would have wanted to, part, to, 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 to impart to the next generation? What, 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 would be, what would be their heart's message? And I think the cool thing is we get to see that out of Paul. As he's, as he's literally just sharing his heart to people that he dearly loves. And so if, you've, if you're taking notes, I've got like five points here and that we've kind of just taken out of this. And um, we've got, I just want to drill down in. The first one, it starts out in verse 18. He says, when they arrived, he said to them, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you? From the first day I came into the province, I served with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. So the first thing we see is that Paul is like literally, he's like, he leans right into relationship. The first point is this, because God can do more with how you live than what you preach. Notice he didn't say, y'all remember that great sermon series I had, right? Remember that year two? Remember that? We, yeah, we went, yeah, that was awesome. You, you guys all remember everything that I told you, right? No, he's like, you remember how I lived in front of you. Because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And he just starts pouring out. He's like, you know me. Like, you, you, you know how I lived. You, you know how I served God. You, you know how I cried in front of you as a grown man. Like, you know how I was tested. You know how I didn't hide my struggles from you. And it's almost like he's saying, like, you may not remember all of the words that I spoke. You may not remember all of the sermons that I preached. But please remember how I live my life in front of you. This is what he leans into. Why? Because our, our life speaks far louder than our words ever will. Amen? And this is what he knows to be true. Paul knew that, like, that God could do far more with a life well-lived than a sermon well-preached. So even for me, like, you know, it's like there are many times I'm like, you know what, you, you probably won't even remember. I don't remember most of the sermons that I preach, right? I don't expect you to. But there's this reality that those connections that you make with godly relationships speak far louder into your life than a, than a sermon ever will. James said it this way. He said, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In other words, don't simply speak the truth, live it. This is the heart of Paul. This is literally, he's just leaning into these people that he loves because he knows that like, Knowing the truth and doing nothing about it is useless. James says it this way, faith without works is dead. And then he goes on. He's like, you know me, you know how I've lived, you know, what, you know who I am. And then he goes on in verse 20. He says, you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. He's like, I told you the truth even when you didn't like it. I told you the truth. I preached the gospel even when you weren't wake, waving hankies and saying, amen, preacher. Like, I, I, I preached the truth to you even when you didn't like it, even when it was really silent. I still preached the truth. Why? Because it was good for you and you needed it. And I wasn't trying to build a mega church. I was trying to build up God's people. And this is the heartbeat of Paul as he's, as he's speaking to these people one last time, knowing that he will never see them again. And I, the thing that I love is like, even though he's like, yeah, and I told you the truth and I didn't pull any punches, even in the midst of it, he leans into relationship. He finishes it right there in verse 20. He says, but I've taught you publicly and from house to house. In other words, I've been in your homes. 
Like, you know who I am. You know the late night conversations that we've been up crying. I've held your hand as, as some of your loved ones have passed on. We've had some really hard times. But it's always been in the, in, in the context of love and, and relationship. Because nobody likes a know-it-all. Do they? Nobody likes, we've all been in situations where we have been condescended to and talked down to uh, somebody is preaching truth to us, right? It's that, it's that love or that truth with, without love. We've all been force-fed truth, but void of love. And where does that lead you? Does it lead you to be like, I just want to get closer to that person? No, it leads you to want to push away. When somebody force feeds truth to you without any love, without any grace, you're just like, I, I really don't want to get anywhere near you or anywhere closer. It pushes us away rather than draws us close. And God's word says that it is his loving kindness that draws people to repentance. Why should it be any different for us? Shouldn't we be living in such a way that our truth, given through the love of God, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, should actually draw people to us rather than push them away? And one of the great grievances I have is that we should be the most winsome people, Christians. And yet as I look at our culture today, how do most people respond? Ugh. They feel judged. They, they feel like they're force-fed truth without love, without grace, without anything. And this is what Paul is like, he's imparting to these people. He's like, you, you should be preaching truth in the, context, in the context of relationship. Think about this, like, like, truth can actually become oppressive. You ever thought about that? Truth, think, truth can actually become oppressive. Like, if we take truth by itself, we can wield it as a weapon to beat down on somebody who doesn't possess it. Right? And then, it, literally, it becomes a hindrance rather than a help. Have you ever been in that place where you're just so frustrated with somebody? Why? Because they're just, they're doing something wrong and they, you wish they would change it. And so we just, we beat them with truth and we think that's going to change. And it actually hinders them and pushes them away from us rather than draws them close and is helpful. Because it's that truth with grace. Like truth without grace is law. It's truth. You can, you, can, you can tell everybody, you can list it, you can memorize it, but truth without grace is law. And all that does is it's like a mirror. It just shows us how dirty we are. It shows us how, how dysfunctional we are. It shows us you know, how, how undeserving we are. But truth with grace, that's the gospel. Like that is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And this, this is what Paul's communicating to the people that he loves. And he would later actually, um, he, he would never see them again, but he would write a letter to them. We know it as the book of Ephesians, right? He, he wrote a letter and reminded them of this very same thing in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. Let me read it for you. He says, Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. Speaking the truth in love. See, Paul knew, and what he's reminding them in the book of Ephesians, what he's reminding them in his like, final departing words to these people that he loves, like his beloved, like he's reminding them that humility is the soil that truth grows best in. 
He's reminding them that truth works best when it comes through tears, when it comes through grace. Church, truth is not supposed to just change your mind. It's supposed to change your heart. It's supposed to do both. Yes, it changes how we think. It changes how we see the world, but it also changes us from the inside out. It has the very power of God. Truth with grace changes us from the inside out. So he's just kind of like, he's just bearing his heart to them. He's just, he's like telling them, you know, I haven't pulled any punches with you because why? Because I know you and you know me. And then he goes on in verse 22. He changes gears and he says, and now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me. Catch verse 23. I only know that in every city, as he's traveling around, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. I mean, wrap your head around what he's literally communicating to these people and what he's got something like on the inside of him that is just so decidedly decided. He's like, I know that I'm supposed to go to Jerusalem. Why? Because I know that I know that I know the Holy Spirit has compelled me and convinced me that this is where I'm headed and this is where I've got to go. And time's a ticking. I've got to get there by the day of Pentecost. I'm not exactly sure what's going to happen to me there, but I'm telling you the Holy Spirit has made one thing very clear, that prison and hardship are waiting for me there. So, got to go. Right? How many of you would be like, listen, um, you know what? I got to go to Jerusalem, and I know that prison and hardship are waiting for me, so time's a ticking, guys. We've got to wrap this thing up. I got prison and hardship to head to. Here I come, right? Like, nobody. Nobody is like that dead set on, I'm, I, I got to go towards prison and hardship. But here's what we know. Here's where we can relate to it. If you're a Christian, if you've ever been convicted of something, when you are gripped by a calling... You can say, I quit all day long. You know, I quit. I'm not done with this thing. This Christian thing isn't working. This role, this this responsibility, this thing that God's given me, this gifting that he's entrusted me with, I'm done. I quit. This isn't worth it. You can say that all day long, but when you are gripped by a calling, you cannot help but walk in obedience to it. Uh, You could try to walk away, but the, the love of Christ literally will continue to compel you to walk in obedience to that which he's called you to. To the point where you have to make a decision, am I going to walk away from him or am I going to walk towards him? But walking towards him sometimes means prison and hardship. It's like, what? This doesn't even make sense. He's like, I'm, I'm compelled to do this. But what I know to be true is that when, when you are moved by the Spirit, then nothing else can move you. Can I just tell you, some of you need to be moved by the Spirit. If you find yourself getting wishy-washy, going from here to there, Christian on Monday, Tuesday, you're like, who? Like going back and forth, just unsure of your faith. I tell, I'm telling you, you need to be moved by the Spirit because nothing else will move you when you are moved by the Spirit. When you are compelled by a calling, God has a grip on you that literally, you can try to struggle, you can say, I quit, all of those things. And he's like, I got my hand on you. Where are you going? <laughs> really? You're going to run? Away? You're going to run? How far? It's like Jonah, right? I'm just, I'm not going to Nineveh, right? It's like, really? How'd that work out? Yeah? You're just going to keep running? Just going to, okay, well, I'll see you in like a couple days. Because when we're compelled with God, nothing else can move us. And then he, he goes on, and it sounds kind of epic. He says, however, in verse 24, 
I consider my life worth nothing to me. Really? My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Like, these are epic words. If you just, like, take verse 24, you're just like, man, he's like, my life is worth nothing to me. Really? Nothing, Paul? Like, he's like, it's worth nothing. He's like, my only aim is to finish the task and to run the race. And I just want to boil it down for you. Essentially, what Paul is saying to us is this. I know that 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 I'm supposed to be faithful. Faithful? I guess. I mean, like, we, we look at faithfulness as kind of like, uh, yeah, that's kind of like a side thing. Like, I know that I know that I know that I'm supposed to, I'm called to do this and I'm called to do that. I've got these giftings and these talents and I've got this money and I've got these influence and I've got all these things. And God's like, I just need you to be faithful. Could you do that? Could you just focus on faithfulness? <laughs> He's like, I know that I know that I know that I I am supposed to be faithful. And the second point is this, that God can do more with your faithfulness than your talents. God can do more with your faithfulness than your talents. And sometimes we get stuck thinking that, well, you know, God's got big, God got big plans for me, and God's gonna, I'm gonna change the world. I'm gonna win Madagascar to Jesus. Like, there's gonna be, I got, I got big plans. Like, God's gonna do some amazing things. But what if God is simply asking every single one of us to be faithful stewards of the last thing He called us to? What if the greatest thing that He calls us to is to just be faithful? What if at the end of the day, that is the thing that all of us are responsible to do? You may do a whole lot of things. God's got great giftings. He's got great talents. He's got a great plan for you. He's got all those things. But what if at the end of your life, the greatest thing that could be spoken over you is well done, good and faithful servant? Not well done, good and faithful, gifted person that does all these kinds of things and you gave all this and you did all that and you, you had the stage, you all these. Like what if the greatest thing that could be spoken over our life at the end of our days is well done, good and faithful servant? Because a servant doesn't own what his master puts in his possession. A servant is a steward of that which has been entrusted to him. A servant knows that at the end of his days, he will be held accountable to give an account for that which has been entrusted into his care. That's what a servant knows. So well done, good and faithful servant. You are the mother that I've called you to be. Well done, good and faithful servant. You are the father that I've called you to be. You are the friend that I've called you to be. Well done, good and faithful servant. Because God can do more with your faithfulness than your talents. He can do more with your commitment than your giftings. And sometimes we, we run after the talents and we run after the giftings and we run after the calling and God's saying, I just need you to actually be faithful with that which I, I have you in right now. I need you to be faithful with the calling that I've placed you in. And don't step left and don't step right. Stand. Stand in it. And then he, he's all over the place. Verse 28 
This is where he, he switches gears. And he speaks to them almost like a, like a dad. He says, keep watch over yourselves. And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which, which Christ bought with his, blood, with his own blood. I know that after I leave, he warns them, he's like savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number in the church, yeah, even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on guard just like switches it up like Paul's farewell address is that to the people that he loves is be on guard and the first thing he says is keep watch over yourself but I, I'm kind of watching everybody else making sure that they're doing what they should do they're you know dotting their dotting their eyes crossing their t's yeah you're taking care of that he says watch over yourself that's your first and it's your first responsibility keep watch over yourself I kind of distilled it down into the, the third point is this, that God can do more with the application of wisdom than the intoxication of knowledge. God can do more with the application of wisdom than the intoxication of knowledge. Let me explain. The risk that we, we run in, in the church today is to become intoxicated with knowledge. This is like knowledge is power, right? This is kind of what we learn, right? You just follow the science and, you know, all of these things. What I need is a, another Bible study. I, I, I need more uh, church services. I need more conferences. I need more sermons. I, I need these, this information because that information is going to be the thing that changes me. I, and we get intoxicated with knowledge. We're overtaught and underapplied. Right? I, and I feel this as a pastor, right? I've got to give you something new. I've got to give you something different. I gotta, but the same old basics of Christianity, some of those things, are like, come on, like, I already got those things. Give me something else. But the reality is that there's so many of the basics that we have, yes, we have, we're intoxicated with the knowledge thereof, but have not yet applied into our life. And he's just like, don't, listen, guard yourself. Don't let knowledge that you've attained never apply as wisdom into your life. Intoxicated by knowledge, but like emaciated by inaction. As I look at the church for today, it's like, I just, need, I just need more information. I just need another, I just need this. I just need more. I just need more of this, another Bible study. I need, I need another sermon. I need all those things. And Paul, after leaving them, after preaching and teaching and being with them for three years, is like, just be on guard. Guard your heart. Keep watch over yourself. Be obedient to the Holy Spirit, even if it's hard, especially if it's hard. Especially if it's hard. Be obedient to the Holy Spirit. Like Paul's kind of reminding them. He's like, now that you have the knowledge of the truth of the word of God, you're now responsible for the truth that you now possess. That is a weighty thing. In an age where we just think, I just need more knowledge. 
just so you know, you're now responsible for the knowledge that you possess. And when we think that the answer is to amass more knowledge and yet apply very little, we're putting ourselves in a very precarious situation. Make sure that you turn your knowledge into wisdom. Make sure that you apply not just knowledge that you've attained as mental ascent, but that you've changed it into action in your life. Be on guard. And then he, he warns them. He, t- he talks about savage wolves. I don't know if you, ever, you guys saw that. He's like, just so you know, savage wolves are going to come in and they're not going to spare the flock and all that. What's he talking about? He's talking about false teachers. That false teachers will come in with a false gospel, with a twisted, distorted gospel, with, with new ideas that, that are actually not the truth of the gospel. So my question is this, like, what does that look like for us? Like, what does that look like in the 21st century? What does that look like in America? What does that look like today? I mean, we, we see Paul leaving these Ephesians, and they had their own set of stuff going on in Ephesus at this time. But what does that look for us if, he, if we're supposed to be on guard, if we're supposed to watch out for the savage wolves, the false teachers among us? Like, good, good thing we don't have false teachers today, right? pretty awesome. It was back at Ephesus, but like, I think we weeded them out. So now we're, we're good. We just, everything's all good. I think one of the difficulties that we face in today's world, especially now, is the ready access of information. Like you can fact, some of you already have, even as I'm preaching, you're fact checking, right? I don't think so. Oh, no. Right? Like, you you can go through, you can be like, you can fact check everything. You can go through and and, and check any, you can can study, you can listen to another sermon. If you don't like what I have to say, you can just listen to somebody else preach on this same message. Maybe they'll tell you something different. Maybe they'll tell you something that you do like, right? I mean, like, so you can kind of go through and we have this ready access to information. And since COVID, it's gotten worse. Can I just just tell you, um, since COVID, Almost every church has a podcast and a YouTube channel. Before COVID, let me, let me, let me phrase this correctly, because we're not in competition, right? I'm, I'm not in competition with Curtis Lake. I'm not in competition with Rock. We're not in competition with East Point, right? But here's the thing. Before COVID, we were compared with the church next door. We were compared with the church down the street. We were compared, you know, like, oh, I don't know, I kind of like this church. I don't like, I like their worship, but the preacher's weird. I, I, we go back and forth. We, like, we can kind of compare and contrast churches. The, but now, um, since COVID, we're compared and contrasted to every church in America. Everywhere. Everywhere. And so now more than ever, especially in the midst of people not necessarily coming back to church or not coming back fully and all of those things, that we find less and less Christians binding themselves to a local church, binding themselves to a weekly gathering, binding themselves to a local body of believers, even binding themselves to a local church pastor. That in and of itself is just kind of, well, that's kind of weird. And you're like, well, doesn't that sound a little self-serving to you, Justin? I'm like, I'm not even talking about you binding yourself to like me. I'm just saying like, this is the, this is the kind of like the situation that we're in. And so what happens is we end up opting for online church, which might, which might consist of a playlist of pastors and a playlist of preaching and teaching all over the spectrum, doctrinally and theologically. But they're excellent communicators. 
excellent communicators. And I, and, 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 I, and I bring this as a warning to you because if we're not careful, and I'm, I'm as guilty of this as, as, as you, is that we will trade good doctrine for great communication. Do you know that false teaching always is communicated really well? Because if it wasn't, you'd be like, well, that's just stupid. I'm following that, right? But false teaching always sounds good. These are not my words, by the way. These are Paul's words, so you can, you can beat, beat on him. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Paul writes, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them. Isn't that weird? That the, isn't, isn't, oh, come on. Can we just talk about that for a second? Isn't it weird that like in this day, 2 Timothy, Paul uses that type of phrase, that they will gather around them. In other words, like I'm an individual and I'm gathering preachers around me. What other time in history have we, been, have we had the technology even to be able to do that? Gather around them. And then he continues, a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And so just like Paul warns Timothy, and just like Paul is warning his, these, these Ephesian elders, the people that he loves, he's like, you will be tempted to reject the truth that you need to hear for someone who will tell you what you want to hear. So he says, be on guard. Guard, guard yourself, guard, guard the, the church. So think about it this way, and then, I'll, and then I'll, I'll move on. Think about it this way before you just kind of push this idea off, and you're like, that's not me, Pastor Justin. <laughs> it's this joker beside me, right? Like, essentially, um, we may not have preachers this, these days that are like, would you just follow me? because I have the words of eternal life. Just, just follow me, and you should only follow me and me alone and all those kinds of things. But we can possibly curate a playlist of teachers, a playlist of preaching, that we can essentially be saying, follow me. Follow me. Gathering around a great number of teachers who will tell us what our itching ears want to hear. All right, I'll let up, I'll let up. Paul, Paul moves on to something that he also thinks is important and he wants to leave with them. Verse 35, he says, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul talks about how like, I worked, I worked for everything that I got. I, I, I provided, my hands worked and toiled so that I could provide for my food and those people that, um, that, that were with me. Paul had purposed in himself to be a hard worker, to earn his wage, to be, and to be a giver. And he's reminding them that, the next point is this, that God can do more with what you give than what you receive. God can do more with what you give than what you receive. He literally says, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And if I were going to like leave this and just kind of be like, well, what's Paul saying here? Essentially, he's saying, when in doubt, get a job. Which speaks probably more to our culture now, more than ever. That's the, that, that's the clap, really? Okay. <laughs> he's like, he's literally, he's like, he's like, when in doubt, get a job. If you're concerned and you're like, I don't want to take from people and I, I don't want to, get a job. And then give generously once you do. That's literally, so I'm going to just leave that there because that's what Paul has to say to you. Has, Paul has to say to the, the, the church in Ephesus, he's like, look, when in doubt, get a job and then give generously. That is kind of his mode that he leaves for the Ephesian elders. That, that you are more blessed to give than to receive. Why? Because it always, investing in others always has a greater return on investment than spending on yourself. Always. It always does. So, he's like, get a job, give generously. And then he drops the mic. Literally, you can read it for yourself. I mean, that's, that's he, he goes all over the gamut. And then he ends with get a job and give generously. And he's like, I'm all done. I'm all done. And, and what perhaps the most impacting part of this message, of, of this, this portion of scripture, is the response after this message of the Ephesian elders, after Paul is done speaking. Let's read it in verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept and they, as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. I don't... So... I don't know if it's just because I'm a guy, but did anybody else notice how many times they talked about tears and crying in these 20 verses? I mean, it's almost awkward. How many times? I'll I'll read them for you. Verse 19, the very beginning, he says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears. Great humility and with tears. Verse 31, he says, remember that for three years, catch this, and this this is where it gets awkward. I never stopped warning you each of you, night and day with tears. Night and day with tears? Verse 37, they all wept and embraced him and kissed him. Now maybe, maybe I'm a little off, but you, you, can, you can weigh in on this and maybe you, maybe you disagree with me and that's fine, but like, um, this seems really odd to me because we've been working through the past 20 chapters of the book of Acts together. Right? We've been talking about Peter, then all of a sudden it switches, and we, we all hear about Paul. And I guess I had in my mind that Paul was like a manly man. Anybody else have that idea? That Paul, man, he wouldn't back down for nobody. You, you could beat him, you could stone him, you could leave him for dead, and he's just like, he just walks back in, he starts preaching again. Like, he wasn't scared of persecution, he wasn't scared of threats. They would be like, don't speak the name of Jesus, and he was like, Jesus. Jesus, 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 right? I mean, like, I literally, that's how I pictured this guy. Like, he's just a man's man. Nobody's going to tell him what to do and what not to do because if Jesus has called him, who are you to tell me anything else? That's how I see him. That's how I I, I viewed this guy. And then we, we see him talking for the first time, this long portion of scripture as he's speaking to these people that he spent three years with, that he's preached to, that he's been living alongside. And he's like a huge teddy bear. 
literally like this this guy is like crying all the time. I cried with you day and night. You know it, right? And then they're hugging him and they're kissing. They're embracing him. Like they're crying over him. And we get this unforeseen glimpse, church, of, of what it must have been like to see Paul minister to people. And it kind of flips it on me. Like, I mean, these people traveled 50 miles to see him one last time. And not to see a gruff, macho man kick him in the pants, but to see a man that they loved and to say goodbye and to kiss him and to embrace him and to cry. And the thing that I've been toiling around with is that what if tears are not meant to be a weakness but a strength? In our world today, especially for men, like tears are a weakness. You know, I never cry, push it back in, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't, I don't cry about this, right? What if tears were meant to actually be a strength, not a weakness? Because what surprises me is that rather than hiding his humanity, Paul led with it. He's like, you saw me, you know me, you saw me tested, you saw me crying, you saw me mad, you saw me, like, you saw all of me, you know, you know who I am. I didn't hide anything from you. I didn't hide my humanity from you. I was who I, who I am, and, and you know me. Because God can do more with your humanity than your, than your abilities. I think the thing that I love about what we just see out of Paul is he just leans in and that like, you know me, you know my humanity, you know that I've been humble, you've seen me cry. I think that sometimes the worst thing we can do is to act like we're perfect and not acknowledge our own weaknesses. Like, I, I got struggles. I think that Paul knew that like, God's power is made perfect in weakness. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Church, God can use your strengths, but his power, he says it, his power is made perfect in weakness. And so many times we walk around thinking we need to lean into our strengths. Why? Because, well, we don't want to have to lean back on the crutch of our weakness. We're going we're to lean on our strengths and act like we're perfect and like, act like we have all these things together. And Paul just leads with his humanity. He's just... You know me, you've seen. And I've got strengths, but I'm not talking about my strengths. That, that means nothing to me. God's, God's power is made perfect in my weaknesses. Why don't you stand with me? I want to leave you with this this morning. And it's just a simple question, and sometimes I ask this, is what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? God can do more with how you live than what you preach. God can do more with your faithfulness than your talents. God can do more with the application of wisdom than the intoxication of knowledge. God can do more with what you give than what you receive. And God can do more with your humanity than your abilities. Like what if, what if you were simply called to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and to be faithful in it no matter what. Like Paul, 
cold, knowing where he's headed, not knowing what that looks like, but knowing that it's not going to be great, that it's not going to be perfect, that it's going to be full of hardship and possibly prison and death. Like, I'm not really sure, but I'm continually choosing to walk this thing out. What if God is simply wanting to use you? Not the perfect filtered Instagram you, but like you, the teary, a little bit messed up, got some things wrong. What if that's the version that God really wants to use? Not the one that's brushed up and has everything all figured out and is perfect and has the right answers and the knowledge. But what if he just wants to use you and the messiness that you find yourself in? See, I don't, I don't find that God is offended at our brokenness. I think he's offended when we pretend that we're not. I think what he loves is when his kids come and say, I need you, Dad. I need your help. I don't have this. And I've run out of strengths to lean on. And all I have is to lean on my weaknesses, knowing that it is in my weaknesses that you're made strong. So maybe you just come in this place as we, as we end in a song today of just saying, Jesus, give me a new understanding of what surrender looks like. That it's not just about me giving you all my gifts and, and why I'm worth saving and why you should do what I'm hoping you'll do for me. And, but what if it is just saying, God, just take my weaknesses. I want you to be strong in them. Be strong when I'm weak, where I'm weak. Jesus, I just allow you to heal, not who I pretend to be, but who I really am. So take it. Use me like you did Paul, who obviously was a bit messy and, and not perfect, but a man who people loved and a man who loved people well. So Lord, we just thank you for the, the model in Paul, how to lead well, how to lead well. And maybe, maybe we can allow ourselves to be beautifully broken just like him, unmoved, faithful in living, faithful in giving, faithful in allowing the truth to go not just to our head, but to our heart as well and to change us from the inside out. Jesus, I pray that we would learn from, from Paul and lead in our humility and lead in our humanity, realizing that it's only there that you can show yourself powerful. I thank you, Jesus. May you take all of us and use us. So Jesus, we lift your name up as we worship you today. We lift you up in this place, realizing that your name is above every name. It's certainly above our names. And we, we ask that you would be glorified in our strengths as well as our weaknesses. God, take all of us, every part of us, and we surrender, we give it to you so that you can be glorified. May your name be made great in Jesus' name. Let's worship.